Genesis 35, beginning in verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. In one of George MacDonald's books, there is a, a character, a woman, who has experienced a, a sudden loss in her life, and she is very sorrowful over it uh, as she speaks with a friend about it. And in her grief, she says bitterly, I wish I had never been made. And her friend replied, My dear, you are not yet made. You are only being made. And this is part of your maker's process. That's the way that we all need to think about all our losses and troubles and trials. The crosses that we bear in this life, the losses that we experience, we are being made. God is at work, and his process involves things like that. It involves bringing us through times of great grief, trials, and sorrows. 
He breaks us down through these things so that he can rebuild us to be more and more like him and like his son. He empties us in this way so that he can fill us with his grace. He calls us to let go of things that we love in this world so that we will learn to cling to him and his love above all. His purposes are always good like that toward us, even in the hardest things. Remember that. Remember, believer, you are being made. And the hard things you face in this life are all part of that glorious process of your maker. But there are times when it is a real temptation to feel bitter like that woman did in McDonald's book. When we suffer, when we suffer uh, fiercely, sometimes our sufferings are uh, so hard that we just find them hard to bear. Jacob probably faced that very temptation to become bitter, especially when he lost his beloved wife. And then shortly after that, his beloved father. As we come here to Genesis 35, verse 16 through the end, uh, we see that uh, life seems to have gotten better for a while for Jacob. Things seem to be going better. Jacob himself seemed to be on a better course. He seemed to have repented of... uh, the way that he'd so recently uh, fallen and gotten himself into a great mess. He's obeyed God at this point by um, listening to God's call to him to go to Bethel. We saw that earlier in the chapter. He just had this amazing encounter with God. God had restated his promises to Jacob, those same old promises that he made to Abraham and to his father Isaac. He's restated those beautiful promises now to Jacob. Jacob seems to be um, walking in the right path, walking in fellowship with God, walking in obedience. But obedience is no guarantee that your life is going to be smooth sailing. It's no guarantee that your life is going to be problem-free. It certainly won't. If you think that it will, you've fallen into that error that uh, is so common, the error of the prosperity preachers, the error of Job's friends that they were spouting to him as they talked with Job after he'd lost nearly everything, basically telling him, hey, if you would repent, and walk uprightly and live the way you should live, you wouldn't have any problems. Well, that's a lie. That's not how the Lord works. The truth is, godly living does not exempt us from suffering. And at times, often, it will bring us into suffering. 
Well, so they made it to Bethel, and uh, that was a bittersweet time there. There was that amazing visit from God, but there was also the death uh, of the beloved servant, Deborah. She was uh, very, um, very precious to that family, to two generations of that family, being the handmaiden of Rebekah first, and now Jacob's family. And so they were grieving. It was a time of grief, but their grief had only begun as they left Bethel and as they headed on their way to Isaac's camp. Jacob would soon be grieving uh, even more intensely. He would have to bury his precious wife, Rachel. She was pregnant. We haven't been told that uh, yet, but uh, it appears um, suddenly that she was. And she had, remember, prayed for a son um, right after she had her first son. She prayed for another back in chapter 30 when Joseph was born. And now here she is about to give birth. I'm sure that they were all hoping that she would uh, uh, make it to Isaac's camp so that the child could be born there. But it was not to be. And as they were on the way, she went into labor and she had problems. And she died in childbirth. She lived just long enough to know that she indeed had another son. And with her last breath, she named him Benoni, which means son of my affliction. It seems Jacob didn't want to give his son a, a negative name like that. Um, the boy would probably be reminded of his mother's death every time someone spoke to him, every time someone called his name. And so Jacob gives him a different name. He gives him a much more positive name, Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. That's a, a better name indeed. But imagine Jacob's heartache at this point. His love for Rachel was very great, and they've just made it back to the promised land. They must have had such high hopes for the future together, and now she's suddenly gone. He set up a pillar to mark her tomb, and uh, it's said that her grave is still there on the outskirts of Bethlehem today. Well, then the scene suddenly switches to uh, another grievous event, a different kind of grief, and that is the sin of Reuben. We're told Jacob's firstborn, Reuben, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and he heard of it. Israel heard of it. Jacob heard of it. What a horrible thing. This is an absolutely horrible thing. Just when you thought the, the sons of Jacob um, couldn't do much worse than what they'd just done in that mass murder of all those men of Shechem, now this happens. And it's even worse than it sounds initially because Bilhah uh, was Rachel's servant, Rachel's handmaiden. She's also the mother of two of Reuben's siblings. So this was incest. 
This is nasty. This is not just a romance either between two consenting people. It's almost surely something much worse than that. Commentators believe Reuben was trying to usurp his father. Reuben, remember, was Leah's son as well. So you've got this competition between these wives of Jacob, and uh, it still goes on here. Uh, You remember, Rachel was so favored. She was loved while Leah was unloved by Jacob. And this sin of Reuben has its roots in that fact. Jacob favored Rachel over Leah. He also favored Rachel's children over Leah's children. And that is terrible in itself. So you can imagine the resentment and the bad feelings, the hard feelings that probably simmered in that family in particular in Reuben and Leah's other children. And some say that Reuben did this because he believed that Jacob would now favor Bilhah because she was Rachel's servant. He would favor her over Leah. Leah would still be getting the short end of the stick, and Leah's children too, even now that Rachel was dead. So Reuben likely forced himself on this woman, Bilhah, to dishonor her in Jacob's eyes. It's quite horrible. They also think Reuben was doing this to try to take his father's place as the leader of the family, like Absalom did with David. And that's quite possible. If that's the case, Reuben is rebelling. He's a rebel here a usurper, trying to overthrow his father, who is the covenant head. You can only imagine the kind of breach this must have caused in Jacob's family. What a nightmare. But Reuben isn't going to get off scot-free. Later, in Genesis 49, Jacob would say, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, but unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He would have been heir as the firstborn. But he lost that. The only thing he receives are strong words of judgment and the abiding anger of his father. Well, then we see the sons of Jacob listed here. These 12 sons represent the 12 tribes of Israel that would come from them. These brothers were going to have rivalry all throughout their lives. There would be animosity, there would be strife between them, and it would finally culminate in the plot to murder Joseph. And the only reason that was avoided, you may recall, was because 
they came up with a, a lesser evil to sell him into slavery rather than to kill him. They made some money off of it. Obviously not much brotherly love here among these siblings. It's very unloving. It is very ugly. But it's also a testimony to God's grace, his great grace, and his faithfulness to his promises, that he keeps on keeping on with these sinful people. And he finally brings good out of their evil. And then in verses 28 and 29, we're told of the death of Isaac. So the grief continues. Could have named this sermon, Grief Upon Grief. Now the days of Isaac, we're told, were 180 years, and he breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. There's a family reunion here. And that's often how it is at funerals, isn't it? He lived to a ripe old age. This, is a, this was a man who had a, a life that was full and rich, and he's honored here. But that is often how it is at funerals, isn't it? We see people that we haven't seen in many years, and it takes a death often to bring family members back together. It's, it's very sad. Jacob and Esau were reunited here at their father's uh, burial. It's interesting to think of what comes next for Jacob. Now that Isaac died, Jacob is the head of the covenant. He's the focus of the covenant promises of God. He wanted so much to be in that position. You remember, he strived for it. He schemed for it. He went for it in ways that were not good. He brought, uh, bought the birthright. He stole the blessing. Bought the birthright, of course, with a bowl of soup. And now he finally reached this point of being uh, the focal point after his father's passing, the head of the covenant. And no sooner does he attain to that and immediately the focus of God's dealings moves away from Jacob. The focus now shifts to his sons and to Joseph in particular. This is a good reminder for us that God's purposes go far beyond us and our individual lives. We get so focused on ourselves, don't we? We're focused uh, each day on me and what I need to do, me and my life. We think about God's purposes in terms of me and what will happen to me and through me. But God's purposes are so much bigger, and they go far beyond us as individuals. You and I are a significant part of God's plans, but a small part, really. The things that God is doing in your life, remember, they're not just about you. God's working 
by his grace in and through us to impact the lives of others, our children, the people around us, even future generations, people that might be reached through those future generations by God's grace. Isn't that amazing to think of that? The Lord can be working in us in ways that are going to uh, just multiply in the days ahead and in generations ahead. That is exciting to think about. Never forget that. God's purposes in the lives of his people are very far-reaching, more than we even imagine with our, our little focus on ourselves. You know, that's true with the things that we go through in this life, our sufferings. God will use those things in ways that are far beyond uh, what he does in our lives. He'll impact other people in your life through the things that you go through. And he's preparing you to work uh, for him and serve him and minister for him in ways you never could without those sufferings. That's true also with the witness of our lives and our sharing the gospel with others. I think that should, this should all be a great encouragement to all of us. Your sufferings, for one thing, are never in vain. God redeems them. He redeems them all. He wastes nothing. He's forming you through them so that you can be his faithful servant and more effective in that way in the world. And your life and your witness for him can have a much greater impact than you even imagine. And it's all by his grace. He's so good to work in and through us in such great ways, far beyond we even imagine. And we may not even see, uh, we won't see the ways that the Lord works gloriously in the future through us but we trust that he will. So what we've seen in these last chapters with Jacob's children, this is the birth of Israel. And it's not a very impressive start, is it? It starts here with a rape, followed by a vengeful massacre of all the men of Shechem, then Reuben committing incest with his father's concubine. And things are not going to look all that much better in the future with Israel. Uh, just in this small family, they're going to sell one of their brothers into slavery. They're going to lie and tell their father that he was killed by some wild beast. And then another one of these brothers is going to end up sleeping with his own daughter-in-law. Of course, he thought that she was a prostitute. That doesn't make it any better, does it? We're left wondering, what in the world? What kind of group is this? These sons of Jacob. <laughs> it's a bunch of bad apples. If you and I were God, we might just... Try to find a different group to work with. Start over. 
But that's just the point. These men were not the choicest, finest raw materials for God to use, to work with, to build his church. And neither are we. Neither are any of us. Thankfully, the Lord is pleased to take very flawed people like us. And he uses us to work out his plans and purposes in the world and to build his church. When we look at these stories, we should really be seeing our own hearts. It'd be easy to conclude it's just too sinful. We're too sinful. We are very messed up people. But our sin is not too much for the Lord. His grace is far greater than all our sins. His grace prevails, just as it did with this family. And this is true because he is absolutely committed to accomplish his will and his purposes through his chosen people. And that should encourage you. It's all about him and his faithfulness. It's certainly not about you and your faithfulness. It's him all the way. Now, the devil thought he won when he had tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and the whole human race was plunged into spiritual death and moral corruption and rebellion against God. Probably thought he'd won the greatest victory. And we're still seeing in this chapter those same kinds of things in these men. And it's important that we see that. This is man in his fallen condition. Man is living out the fall. But more importantly, we also see the unrelenting grace of God. The devil underestimated God. God is able to accomplish all his saving purposes with miserable sinners like us. Like these men, the sons of Jacob, and like you and I. We are so deeply flawed, but God loves to use people like that. He loves to use people who look hopeless, who seem too far gone. Even the worst of sinners, think about that phrase. Think of the Apostle Paul. And think about Peter with his three denials of Christ. Think about the rest of Jesus' disciples, especially as we see them in the Gospels, just fumbling around and goofing up. And These were not uh, the stellar cream of the crop, first-round draft picks that God picked to be his people and his servants. It's all about God's grace. His grace that is greater than all our sins and all our failures. He delights 
to save sinners like us and use us in his service. Because then all the glory has to go to him. Praise the Lord. It's such a wonder that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the blessed Holy Trinity, that he would come into this world and die, not for good folks, but for these kind of folks, for our kind of folks, people like us. And he did that. That was the cost of God's commitment to save the sinners whom he has chosen and set his love upon. Christ laid down his perfect life and he offered himself up as a perfect atoning sacrifice for all our sins on the cross. And the Father was perfectly pleased with Jesus' sacrifice. And he accepts us now all and only because of what Jesus did for us. We are no better. We come from the same stock as Jacob's children. Miserable sinners. We can own that title. We deserve to be condemned to hell, and by nature, that's how we come into this world, as Paul said in Ephesians 2. But by God's grace, and his grace alone, we are chosen and forgiven and justified, and we're made alive in Christ. We're made new creatures in Christ, and by grace, we are saved. Unrelenting grace. Paul says there in Ephesians 2, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. The gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We can't boast at all in our works. We can boast in God and His grace. That's His commitment to you, believer. All sufficient grace to save you to the uttermost. So be comforted by that. Be encouraged. You're perfect in God's eyes already if you're in Christ by faith. And you will be perfected completely in glory. And it will be very soon. This life is so short. It'll be very soon. Until then, worship and serve the Lord in gladness. Worship him with rejoicing and with thanksgiving for all that he's done for you in Christ and all that he's promised and is committed to do for you in the future and bringing you all the way to glory. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your Son and for your love that moved you to send him to save us. We pray that you'd help us to see ourselves um, even like Jacob and his sons. We need to see our sin 
so that it drives us to Jesus for his grace. We need to appreciate how great his grace is toward us. And for that, we need to know our sins. So we pray that your spirit would convict us, show us in light of your word how much we need the Lord Jesus Christ every day so that we can cling to you for fresh forgiveness and renewal and strength to walk in the way of obedience. Strengthen us, we pray. Fill us with your spirit. We need you every step of the way. We need your amazing, abundant grace that pardons us and that enables us to walk with you. And none of this will be by our strength, but by your power at work within us, all for your glory. Glory be to God. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.